you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community, because it's good to be well-endowed. On today's episode, we meet Dustin Bajer. Dustin is an educator, master gardener, writer, beekeeper, and ecologically inspired designer. And he's a volunteer on ECF's Environment and Animal Welfare Subcommittee. That's right. If you've been following our blog, you'll have noticed we've been profiling some of our granting committee members here at ECF, because we want to show how much they help us in distributing funds to the community. In 2020, ECF granted a record $35.7 million to more than 730 charities and 432 students. We try not to toot our own horn too often on the podcast, but we've reached an exciting granting milestone, and now we want to share it with all of you. ECF got started back in 1989, so about 31 years ago. And as of the end of 2020, we have provided more than $300 million in funding, and we're still growing. We achieved this milestone because of our generous donors, and because of the hard work of our staff and volunteers who serve on the board and committees. That's why for this episode, we're profiling just one of our many wonderful volunteers. Lisa Pruden sat down with Dustin Bajer to get the inside scoop on his environmental expertise and hear about what it's like to serve on one of our granting committees. Just to get us formally started, would you mind doing a self-introduction for our listeners? My name is Dustin Bajer, and uh, my background is education, but I guess I dabble in all things kind of at this crossroads of ecology and city building. And so that's where I like to spend most of my time. So that naturally is uh, kind of a lot of uh, urban agriculture. So the bees, the trees, um, a lot of the stuff that I work on is kind of the intersection of those two. And so you're on ECF's Environment and Animal Welfare Subcommittee. Can you talk a little bit about your work there? Yeah, so I've been on the subcommittee for a few years now. We basically get to read a lot of really interesting uh, grant proposals and have some in-depth conversations about them. Uh, so it's kind of uh, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about it is it's, it's been really interesting um, and a positive experience to see all of the fantastic things that are happening in and around Edmonton. So whether the, the grants are um, given or not, uh, I think every single one of those projects has been uh, very interesting and I, I think worth doing. So it's been for me like a really in, uh, fantastic inside look into you know all this kind of nonprofit uh, world of Edmonton. But also, it's been great to connect with other people on the subcommittee and to really get involved with ECF. I was aware of the organization before I joined the committee, but having spent a few years now volunteering, it's become apparent how how much support that organization provides. And it, I think, has, in my mind, has, has become this, this really important um, sort of local social infrastructure that um, kickstarts really a lot of 
of excellent work. And so I'm, I'm really excited to be able to, to help and support that in, you know, whatever way I can. So even if that's just like, you know, being able to, to read all these grants and jump in on these meetings and discuss them, that's been phenomenal. And so you were invited to join the committee because of your areas of expertise. And so we had featured you on our blog in an article that was written by Paul Blinov. And Paul described you as, quote, a high school science teacher, master gardener and beekeeper with a penchant for urban agriculture. And so it made me so curious about your world. How do these intersect for you? What does this look like? It's a good question. Um, I think... So I actually, I've spent more than half of my life now in the city of Edmonton, but I actually grew up on an acreage outside of uh, a small uh, rural town in, in Alberta on the edge of a forest. And so I've got these like sort of really fond memories of running around the forest and, and building forts and climbing trees. And I think when, you know, when I moved to the city, uh, even though Edmonton does have this amazing river valley, I think I missed aspects of that. And uh, I got really involved in something called permaculture design, which is a sort of a systems approach to to designing. And so it's less about it's less about what you're designing with and more about how the pieces, how you fit the pieces together. So I heard one person describe it recently is like it's less about this the singers and more about the song. And with the idea that that if you're creating a garden or you know designing a city, what makes it resilient is the connections between the pieces. Um, and it kind of occurred to me that, I mean, I guess it's no surprise because permaculture takes direct influence from natural systems. And that's exactly what a forest is doing. A forest is not the individual trees and plants. It's how those things are linked together in such a way that um, resources are shared. And so you you end up with these like really resilient systems. So like nobody needs to water it. Nobody needs to weed it. Nobody needs to go around and squish the little bugs. It has all of that diversity and those connections built into it. And um, it kind of occurred to me, that's also what a city is, right? A city is a place for maximizing connections. We There's a reason we live here, right? You can work and play and find serendipity and opportunity in the social um, and physical connections that exist in a city. I think you end up with something really magical if you can combine all of those connections that you find in an ecosystem with those connections that you find in the city and kind of put them together in mutually beneficial ways. I'm not talking about like smashing them together arbitrarily, but I actually think that a lot of the problems or challenges that cities face can be solved by you know, solutions that, that forests or ecosystems are already doing. So if we talk about introducing or creating ecosystems in our cities, we now have solutions for flood mitigation. We now have solutions for um, extreme temperature and droughts. We now uh, can bring in food production if we want, right, to, to, to loop the urban agriculture thing in. Um, you, can, you can build biodiversity and you can build climate resilience right in a city by inviting ecology into it. And so I tend to spend my time on projects that work in that space. My background is education. So actually, I, I went to, uh, to university to become a physics and a math teacher. Uh, and I did that for a while. But I just found myself building, you know, building gardens and food forests with kids, which was phenomenal. 
And that kind of led me down a few different avenues. And so I eventually uh, went down to halftime teaching to pursue some of those and then finally uh, resigned from uh, Edmonton Public to pursue all of this stuff kind of full time, though I still do end up in the classroom somewhat regularly. That's excellent. Um, I just want to go back to your description of kind of how bringing an ecology into a city would work. Um, do you have an example of what that looks like physically? Yeah. So I guess, you know, there are examples of this being used already, even in the city of Edmonton. And so um, Hermitage Park is, I mean, it's a big dog park, but there's this big funny shaped sort of meandering pond in the middle of it. And that was designed to take all of the runoff water from the street above. And instead of just like dumping that into the North Saskatchewan River, it actually dumps it into this pond and it's forced to meander. And any of the contaminants are remediated by the biology that lives in that pond. And then it overflows into the North Saskatchewan. So it's actually cleaned by the ecosystem before it gets there. And, you know, if you think about it, like that's, that's kind of like one large example. So even at the community level, if we, if we go up to a neighborhood, we have these boulevards that we're all ex- expected to, to maintain. You know, those could be with uh, changing the shape of them, adding more organic matter, maybe even adding more plants. If we invite ecology into those spaces, then that starts to hold on to water. So the water doesn't just like land on our boulevards and head it down the drain and then overwhelm the system below. A good percentage of the water that lands there actually gets soaked up, used by the trees. The plants transpire and, you know, reduce the urban heat island effect. And then if we bring that even into our yards, right, our yards are kind of hydrophobic. We design them to accumulate the water and then shed it. But if we designed our yards to instead of accumulate, but actually disperse, spread that water over the landscape, over our yards and like under our gardens and under our trees, you know, you can start to think or start to see how each individual house or each individual garden, each individual boulevard or, you know, human made uh, water catchment basin all becomes part of this, this larger distributed sort of ecological approach to, to water management. Uh, and then, of course, depending on the plants that you stick in there, I mean, you can increase um, native species, you can provide habitat for uh, people or for animals, you get all of the benefits of tempering the urban heat island effect. Uh, so just taking those extremes out. And so I really think that there is a lot of opportunities at sort of various scales to to adopt these kinds of solutions. And, and by the way, like right now, I'm talking about all of the really fantastic ways that we benefit from having that nature there. But I would argue that the nature also benefits from, from being in the urban environment. We tend to think of cities as like maybe harsh places for nature, but uh, that sidewalk that you walk on is also, it's water catchment. So let's, let's, let's send that water that lands there to the ecosystem that's growing right beside it. Let's send it to our boulevard trees. Um, there's a lot of plants that I grow uh, here in the city that you can't actually grow outside of the city because of our urban hi- uh, heat island effect. There's plum varieties or uh, what are some weird things that I've been growing, growing playing around with pawpaws that you, there's no way you could grow outside of the city. And so in some ways, the city can become a little bit of this ecological oasis or uh, refugia for diversity. It, it sounds really strange to say, but cities are already some of the most 
biologically diverse places on the planet. And that's like largely with us being a little bit cautious of bringing nature into the city. I think if we were to embrace it, you could really create something pretty spectacular. That's very cool. So, and this is this is kind of the idea behind the urban agriculture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, urban agriculture is fair. I mean, I was going to say it's fairly new, but maybe you might also be able to argue that it's very old. Um, you know, you don't cities aren't really possible until agriculture comes about, and you can no longer sort of move around, and so you create these settlements. And so there's kind of a natural fit between the built environment and growing food. Now, that being said, you know, there are certain applications of urban agriculture that just don't make sense. So canola, you typically need a lot of it in order to, in order to really yield anything. So you're not going to, you know, if you turned a vacant lot into a canola field, is that really the best use of that space? Probably not. But um, you can grow a tremendous amount of, um, of, of produce on a vacant lot. And the thing that I get really excited about are perennial foods. So our fruits and nuts, as an example, um, you know, you can plant a chestnut tree and that thing could live for hundreds of years. And every year, you know, it's going to produce more food than, than, than the year before. And so when you start talking about, you know, planting thousand year old food producing trees, yeah, we can, we can literally grow a future that is so much more abundant than the present. I love, I love trees because they're long lived, which I think has a couple of effects. Like one is it's kind of this, you know, it's this, it's a source of food that lasts for decades or, you know, centuries. Um, but I think in, in cities, which we tend to think of as like fast moving, um, you know, our homes and our developments seem to only last 30, 40 years, what does it mean to plant a tree in the front that can live for a thousand years? How does that change the way that we view the urban landscape? So I think there's some some fun kind of philosophical things to to consider. So this is very cool. I'm, I'm enjoying this thinking about our city uh, in a new way and in a way that puts uh, ecology first as opposed to, well, like, I guess rather marrying the two as opposed to prioritizing the built environment without consideration for how ecology can be a part of that, rather prioritizing ecology along with that built environment. So I was also very curious about your experience with beekeeping, because uh, for a little while there in Edmonton, it seemed to be a growing hobby. And then in the past few months, I guess during the pandemic, I really stopped kind of hearing about it. What's happening with beekeeping in Edmonton? It's still growing. Um, when the pandemic hit, the city of Edmonton didn't have the resources to be able to add additional licenses. So for 2020, anybody who wanted, any new beekeepers who wanted to come on board weren't able to. And um, that's no longer the case. And so the city's back to accepting new licenses. So I think it's been something that's been growing it is, it's an interesting activity, beekeeping. And in some ways, like we often lump beekeeping and um, raising chickens into kind of like one category, even though those are like two very different animals. But the city created uh, the bylaws around both of those at the same time. But, you know, these bees are, you know, they live in your, they live in your backyard. They're not captive. They can leave whenever they want, right? So a chicken has a coop and it's got a fence around it. These bees leave every day 
when the weather is nice. And they are traveling five up to 10 kilometers in every single direction. Yeah, I don't know. It's this amazing distributed organism that that like an amoeba sort of like it doesn't have a shape it just kind of like it heads out into its world and it gathers um but the great thing that i like the thing that i love about bees in general is that like they're going out and exploiting resources in their environment but they do it in such a way that improves the environment right like they go around basically robbing plants of pollen but in the process accidentally spill some of it <laughs> and and pollinate these plants and um i don't know like that's a that's a pretty it's a pretty good model like if you can go around and interact with your environment in ways that actually benefit your environment um not easy to do but uh, maybe something worth striving for absolutely how do bees benefit the urban landscape yeah so we actually have um it's worth acknowledging that we have over 300 species of native bees and that honeybees are not one of them. So honeybees aren't native. And maybe I'll talk about sort of bees in general. So there's obviously like the ecosystem services and pollination. So if you're growing any, any kind of plant that you're hoping to, um, you know, get seeds or get fruit from, then you're going to need some kind of pollinator. So there's, there's that aspect. I think, Keeping honeybees in the city for me has been so. There's this there's this idea put out by E.O. Wilson um, called biophilia that people do have this inherent love and and sort of need for nature, and there's something sort of very soothing about having this humming hive in your backyard that you can listen to and you can watch, and it's it's kind of it's sort of mesmerizing. Um, it's almost like sitting around a campfire and watching like the flames. Okay, so I asked Dustin to send me some sound of his bees, and he did. So here are what Dustin's bees sound like as they hum around their hive. You can even hear children playing in the background of the neighborhood. You know, it's, it's, it's the sound of life. It's the sound of running water. And um, there's something really calming about inviting that world into your backyard that I guess kind of reminds you that, you know, you're situated amongst this, this kind of larger living world. Um, and honeybees, I think, have been a really great, um, like, door in, in, into that for me. And I guess like the honey itself is really interesting because um, like the honey in my backyard tastes different than like a hive down the street or a hive in another neighborhood. Uh, we're used to thinking of honey as sort of all just tasting the same. And that's mostly because what you buy at the store has been blended together to taste the same. The honey itself is, is originally produced by the plants as a nectar. And so in the city, you know, you're getting lilac honey and you're getting mayday honey and you're getting cherry blossom honey. And the plants in my neighborhood are different than the plants in your neighborhood. So our honeys taste different. And so you can literally taste, you know, the environment. You can taste your neighborhood by, you know, tasting a, a tablespoon of, of urban honey. And that is, I think, I think there's something kind of magical about that. Yeah, that's cool. That's reminding me of um, 
wine tasting where you have the is it the terroir what's the there's yes, a fancy yeah word. yeah so the local beekeeping community we uh a bunch of beekeepers all brought some uh some honey from their own hives together and we gave a bunch of samples to mel Priestley, who is a local sommelier and writes a lot about wine and she did um, and she also has had bees in the past and we did a blind taste test and so she had created descriptions for each of the each of the honey samples and um it was great yeah it was great very cool. Well, thanks so much for sharing like some of your background and a bit about where your passions lie. Why did environmentalism or ecology and the welfare of ecology systems, like how did you come to this? What brought you to it? And why, why is it so close to your heart? I mean, I think like a, one part of that, one way to answer that is to talk about my childhood and running around in the forest. But I've always been a bit of a tinkerer. I like to build things. I like to create things. And working with nature is just really good design. And so I think I've always tried to approach my work from that perspective. You know, some people identify very strongly as environmentalists. Um, other people don't. But I think when you're talking about integrating nature into the city as really just, just really good urban design, that is going to help mitigate a lot of the challenges that we presently experience, as well as a lot of the challenges that we will experience due to climate change. And it'll be a more affordable way of doing that. And it's going to increase biodiversity. And I actually think it's just going to be a more interesting city to walk around in. I don't know. It's, it's hard to not, it's hard to not love that. Yeah. I, I think really I, I approach it from, from sort of that perspective. There's so many reasons why you'd want to do this. And I think, yeah, I think good design is is one that we often overlook. And so um, you have found a place where you can put some of this passion to even further community use on the subcommittee that you volunteer with here at ECF. And I understand that you came to this committee or that you became more aware of the work of ECF through some of your students. Could you tell that story? Yeah. Um, so I was teaching at Jasper Place High School. And a student that I'd been working with for a few years on some permaculture projects, actually two students that I've been working with, they came to me and they said, we have some funding to build a green wall. And I said, what do you mean you have some funding to build a green wall? And they said, oh, we got um, like $1,500 from the Edmonton Community Foundation. So they had just put in an application, like on their own, like unprompted to build a green wall at the school. And they were, they were given some funds and it was kind of, uh, they sort of came to me and were like, Hey, we have money. We're building this thing. Do you want to, do you want to help us out? And it's like, oh, okay. Um, I, I really have to admire the, the initiative of these students. They didn't really like ask for permission. They just kind of went out and, and, and did it. And then, uh, yeah, over the, over the course of uh, a few more years, we, we put together a few different iterations of the green wall and eventually settled on one uh, particular design, which is still at the school and still in use. And so um, with your work on the committee now, you were saying how you get to kind of see all these different projects coming up. What do you like about the granting process? And do you have any tips for future granting applicants? Oh, man, I... I, well, I've discovered that I'm like the that I want to fund everything. Like I'm the person on the community that's just like this is great, give them money, which is <laughs> kind of unrealistic. Like you really need to, yeah, kind of whittle down what's what's important. 
what what's interesting for me is there's always this kind of this this tug of war between the creating something new and the maintaining something good that is that is currently happening because we get both of those grants we get something that is like we you know we need some funds to to continue or expand an existing program and then sometimes you get those 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 like really just like super innovative out of the blue kind of kind of things that are just like really new and you think like wow this is like unproven but this could be very cool um and so like i said i i kind of my default is to want to fund everything i think from you know one of the things that sets out a really strong grant is having those really kind of actionable tangible goals those those outcomes with like measurements, like how, like, what are you trying to achieve? How do you know you're going to achieve it? And like, how is this, this, how are these funds going to help you achieve that? And I think if you can, you can lay it out in a very kind of logical uh, manner, that's always very helpful. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work going through and reading these grants and I enjoy reading them. Um, but if you can really sort of spell it out and not, and not uh, make the, the reader have to kind of guess what they think you're doing. I think that's going to put together a really strong application. I guess as well as just being able to to demonstrate that you actually have the capacity to to execute it, right? And so for me, if you've got a great project that is going to, you know, do good or increase your ability to continue to do the good that you're doing, your goals are very actionable and I can see um, evidence that you're able to execute it. It becomes that much easier to give it a thumbs up. Those are great tips. Yeah. So you've been volunteering, was it six years? I, I've lost track. I, honestly, I don't remember. <laughs> Several years. Several years. I feel like I may have just moved into this house around there. So that would be, yeah, about right, six years. Wonderful. Um, and so what what keeps you coming back? Yeah, I think to go back to what I said earlier, it's inspiring to see learn about the fantastic things that are happening as well as it's really great to be a part of, you know, even in a small way, an organization that does so much good for the community. And um, I think it's, it's the combination of those two things that have, have kept me coming back. Um, the endowment fund structure is, is really interesting. Like I, I was until I started volunteering, had no idea um, what, an endowment fund was how it worked or the fact that the fund even just like the fact that anybody can create one um, and that it, it grants off of the interest it's earned over time. So that like principal amount never disappears. And so you have this organization that is set up in such a way that it just keeps, you know, it can give back to the community forever like I love that model because it's it's a that model's about long-term thinking which is one of the reasons why I love trees right it's 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 long-term thinking yeah I feel like there there's you know in a in a fairly fast-paced society that is you know built on you know what's happening today what happened yesterday what am I doing this week the election cycle you know all these fairly quick you know short nows it's great to be involved in in an organization that has a that has a longer now that's thinking about things in in a longer longer time span. So yeah, that's 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 a kind of a big bonus for me. 
That's cool. I like very much how it matches up with, as you said, how, how you feel about trees, but also what you said earlier about creating a more abundant future. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So Dustin, what's next for you? What's coming up on, on your horizons? Yeah, I've been um, working on and I'm really excited about a tool to get more trees into communities. So for the last five years, I've been working on an urban tree nursery uh, and growing out sort of hundreds of local plant varieties, as well as trialing some new varieties and species that I think should do well here. And it's been it's been good. It's been fun, you know, getting them into the hands of individuals who are going to like plant them in their backyards. But I'm really passionate about like a lot of the the school gardens that I'd worked on in the past, the community gardens. Uh, and so I've been talking with some of those communities, school boards, uh, community gardens, uh, the city of Edmonton, of course, to try to find a way to crowdfund like free trees and plants for community projects. I've been playing around with the name Shrub Scriber, which I don't know if it's sort of a mouthful, but um, I guess kind of describes what, what the goal of the project is. Uh, so I'm hoping to, to put that out into the world in some form or another this spring and see if we can sort of kickstart some of the, some of that urban greeting, some of the, that green infrastructure, that, that, you know, knitting together the ecology in the city that I've been talking about. So I'm, I'm very excited about that and um, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Thanks again for joining us on the show and letting us highlight you as one of our wonderful volunteers. Well, I'm happy to keep volunteering. It's um, a fantastic experience. And if anybody gets the opportunity, I highly recommend it. A warm thanks to Dustin Bezier for sharing his time with us. If you'd like to learn more about Dustin and his work, check out our show notes for the links to the website and social media. And be sure to check out our blog to meet more of our wonderful volunteers. You can find it at ecfoundation.org, and we'll have a link to that as well. With all this talk of granting milestones and the many people who make that possible, you might be wondering if you could be eligible to receive funding or how to become one of our amazing donors. Of course, we'll have links to those upcoming student awards and granting deadlines. Be sure to check out those funding opportunities. And you'll also be able to find links for donating as well. We said it at the top, but it's worth repeating. ECF's work is made possible by the many generous people who donate and create funds, by our wonderful volunteers on our board of directors and our committees, and by our fellow team members. Sincerely, thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for spending your time with us. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, be sure to share it with your friends and family. If you have time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find us. And you can visit us on Facebook, where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And Elizabeth Monkink. Until next, next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.